Well, we come here and we think we're here to hear a sermon, and I can assure you that all the other things that have taken place are really supporting what, what the Lord has um, brought to me. It's been over 10 years now. There was a, a friends, uh, friends of my wife and I, Don and Susie Van Ryan. You may have heard about this. In 2008, they wrote a book. They wrote a book because... Their daughter was in an automobile accident with, a, with some others, and she and another daughter, someone else, uh, were casualties. So two families, but only one surviving young lady. So the one family held a funeral quickly, and the other family started the long task of rehabilitation because the injuries were significant. And so the, as the weeks went on, uh, it got strange, though, because the daughter, w- with amnesia and whatnot, was starting to improve, but it, she wasn't acting, it seemed like their daughter, despite the, the injuries. And finally, um, it became more obvious. She didn't recognize her boyfriend, and even the parents, she could say that they, those are not my parents. So they finally realized that their Laura, this was not their Laura, and that Laura had died. And this was the other family's daughter. So it's a question, according to the book's title, Mistaken Identity. Tragic situation, and we know these godly couple. Um, And so they wrote this book, and you may have heard about it because it was on uh, Matt Lauer, had it on the TV and everything. But the mistaken identity. Identities are important. The girls looked somewhat similar. And with the injuries, it was difficult. But it wasn't the same. There's more to us than what we look like or what our name is. Identities. Who, who the girl was had significant implications. Once they learned that it wasn't their daughter, that was just the beginning of the rest. The implication, they had to take action. It was not their daughter. The other, they had to bury their daughter. They thought it was someone else. And so identity has implications. This is an extreme case, of course. But what happens when we don't really know someone like we think we do? I mean, there's some lighthearted moments, too. We've probably all been embarrassed. You forget someone's name or their city or, or that you knew them at all. I'm not the only one. I'm sure that's gotten a completely blank stare back because we've never met. And yet, I thought so. It happens. It happened to the Apostle Paul. He was... Uh, under trial, and somebody was shooting her mouth off at him, and he said, you whitewashed wall. And someone said, how dare you speak to the high priest that way? And he had to walk that back. I, I'm sorry, I didn't know it was the high priest. So evidently the identity of the high priest was not as obvious as it normally would have been. It happens to us all. So the question of the text we're going to read today 
has to do with identity. Not, not who is my daughter or who is the high priest, but who is Jesus? It sounds simple enough, but it's possible that we know him in a way that falls short of what we, what we should, what we could, what we must. Before Paul uh, became the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And before he met the Lord Jesus on the, on the road, he was a very ambitious rabbi. But once he met the Lord Jesus, he asked two immediate questions. Who are you, Lord? And what would you have me to do? And both those questions are addressed in our text today. Luke is going to use Peter to highlight who Jesus is. And so this is in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible or your batteries are running low and you want to use the Pew Bible, it's on page 867. Luke 9, we'll start reading at verse 18. And we'll go to verse 36. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one this, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the priests, chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, 
it's, it, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in these, those days anything what they had seen. So this passage, these little sections strung together, um, highlight Peter. And one portion Peter, you know, credits, we give him credit for recognizing Jesus. But then later on, we like to condemn him for saying those things. And so let's think about, are we going to, is Peter going to be our hero or our villain? The first little section, Jesus is on a little identity probe. What, what do people think about me right now? And so he asked them, and there's some, some of the guesses. Some think that basically one of the prophets, Elijah, uh, Moses. Now, he was going to be someone like Moses, so that's an informed guess. It was said that Elijah must come first, so another informed guess, one of the prophets, but these are far afield from who Jesus really is. And so he probes further and asks all the disciples, and of course Peter's the one that speaks up. He tells them, he confesses that Jesus is the Christ of God. Now this statement is, is right. I mean, it's like, teacher, teacher, I have the right answer. And Peter gives it. And that's great. But isn't Jesus' response a bit strange? I mean, he jumps all over him. He gives him a gag order. You can't talk about this. Because Peter's confession actually requires Jesus' redefinition. Because when they said, you're the Christ of God, he knew what they were thinking. They did not really identify him thoroughly. It was a good answer, a good profession, but as we see later, it does fall short. Because what they were thinking, they were thinking that Jesus was going to be their king. Right now, they wanted a political remedy that Jesus would come and be the the Messiah right now. But that was way off God's timetable. And so he said, you can't talk about this now. This will throw it all off. They thought that he was going to be their king and they were on his side. They wanted to be, to borrow the current phraseology, on the right side of history. 
So Peter was answer was loaded with this, what we call over-realized eschatology. It's coming in too soon. He was not going to be their political savior right then. And sometimes I think people actually feel let down by Jesus. They think that, well, if God is good, then he will, he's going to come in and he's going to fix my marriage and fix my job and find me a spouse and fix my finances and just make everything perfect. And those things can happen, but it's a realization, it's a, a response to following and having those blessings come. We are a little too self-focused. And so we should not be thinking that Jesus came to give us a, a minor repair. Jesus wants to come and give you an overhaul. So Jesus has not let you down. He's not let anyone down. It's our fallen thinking and our, our selfishness that leads us these, these strange directions. But Peter here, he gets the right answer, but Jesus must immediately define what Peter's profession means. And so he does that after he charges them not to say anything, he tells them about the Son of Man, which is a really special term, has prophetic significance. He tells them that he has to suffer many things. He has to be rejected. He has to be killed. Now, it's hard to embrace, here comes our king with rejection being killed. You can't have an exalted King Jesus without the suffering Jesus. It's just the plan. It's God's plan. It's what makes our whole spiritual reality work, as we've been learning from Romans. It's so key. Exaltation follows after suffering. It's a maximum of the Christian life. First are suffering, and then comes the glory. But our fallen minds want to skip the suffering part. We have no interest. We think that's an optional thing. I didn't sign up for that. No, it's part of the package. And Jesus is our example in that. He could not get to glory without suffering. It's the same for you and for me. So for the note takers, this 1A is about uh, who is Jesus? Jesus is uh, the Christ. But the Christ is not just king, it's the suffering Savior. Because it's a real problem if we have a a crossless Christ. If we identify Jesus without knowledge of the cross, it's quite useless. Knowledge about Jesus without the the heart-changing realization of what the cross means is merely uh, an academic, spiritual sophistication. The cross is actually very ugly, very hideous. In our home, thanks to a little sewer problem, we're doing some remodeling. And so just this week, uh, my, my two daughters, my sons are all gone, my two daughters helped me clean and replace 
install the, the old toilet. Get it, you know, onto the, hooked up to the septic system, and some of you are becoming uncomfortable as to where this is leading. And that's the point. That's inappropriate. We shouldn't discuss that here. It's, it's, it's yucky, right? Well, that's how the ancient Near East people thought about the cross. You wouldn't mention the, a cross in, in pleasant conversation. That's gross. No one wanted to think about uh, a, a dirty, messy criminal being hung naked on a cross in broad daylight. That's nasty. Well, think of what the cross means today. What a transformation. The symbol of the cross is a, such a, a beloved symbol of what Christ did and all the implications of salvation. So now the meaning of the cross has been so transformed. We who have been saved, sinners forgiven by Jesus, it's just the most precious symbol. We find it's on bumper stickers, it's, it's on tattoos, it's on billboards, it's, it's everywhere. And it's not, it doesn't have the same offense. And so when we look back on the scriptures and we read it, we have to take that into consideration. They had, didn't want to talk about the cross. Nobody wanted to dwell on it. One of the, one of the hymns that I have enjoyed was, says, uh, The cross, the cross, the blood-stained cross, the cross of Christ I see. It speaks of Jesus' precious blood that once was shed for me. I mean, that's how I see it. And I enjoy it. But back then, it was a very topic to avoid. And so many people today are still misidentifying Jesus. Maybe you've heard C.S. Lewis's trilemma. A, a dilemma. A dilemma says you have two choices, two propositions. You have to choose one or the other. The trilemma he talked about Jesus, if he was either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Some of, you, some of you must have heard that. If he really said what he said, if he said he was God, maybe he's a lunatic, if he really believed that, and it was not true. Or if he didn't believe it and he said it, well, then he's just a liar. But if he really did say it, and it really, he really did believe it, and he's not a legend and the whole thing is a mockery, and the conclusion is, he's the Lord. But that's a hard conclusion to come to, because if you come to that conclusion, he's the Lord. Lord over what? Then you have to hear him say, why call you me Lord, Lord, not do what I say? And so it's difficult to actually come to that conclusion without the submission. Trust and obey, as we like to sing. This leads us to the next section of our text about Jesus' authority. Jesus is the Lord. Here he's going to make discipleship very plain. What is discipleship? If anyone would come after me, so a disciple is a, a learner, a follower. 
If anyone would come after me, that's discipleship, here comes the hard words. Let him deny himself. Now, we're not talking about skipping ice cream and candy bars. Denying yourself means my ambitions, my goals, my plans, my will. Denying yourself means I'm going to put that aside and submit to God's will. And to take up his cross daily. The cross. There it is again. The shame associated with the cross. Our society is so used to being popular and counting how many friends we have on Facebook and all these sorts of things. When truly, sorry to break it to you, but the Christian life embodies some shame because Jesus is not popular. And that's part of taking up your cross daily. It comes and follow me. It's not my own direction. I'm taking Jesus' direction. So he's defining discipleship here. Verse 24, whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life would save it. He's saying, if Jesus really is who he claims to be, then you'd be a fool not to follow him. Because that's, that's real life. And so, but you have to lose your own life to have that life. It's a, it's a, it's a dilemma. Two, top, two options. You can't have both. You either follow him and take his, or if you want to keep your own, you can't have his. So if you lose your life for his sake, you will save it. Because that will be truly living. The next verses just support that. What's the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? Whoever's ashamed of me, in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory. So for our note-takers, 1B, now it's, uh, we're talking about lordship. Who is Jesus? He was the Christ, thanks to Peter's statement, and here he's defining that Jesus is Lord. We often put ourselves on the throne, but by his definition, denying yourself, taking up the cross, your heart can't be on the throne. It needs to be Jesus. And so he makes discipleship very plain, explaining the two alternatives. It can be me, myself, or it can be him. And the consequences flow from there. He mentions that some standing there would not, uh, not die until they saw the kingdom of God. Somewhat debated concept, but in the very close to the text, very plainly, what comes next? We're about to see the transfiguration. The kingdom of God. A manif- an early manifestation of it. And so that takes us to our third section. And here we're going to see Peter was our hero. He, he came up with the right answer, but here he actually disses Jesus. We get the setting and the characters, Peter, James, and John. And again and again we hear 
it seems like Luke can't tell a story without it being framed in the concept of prayer. They're always praying, going to pray. That's happening up on the mountain. That's why they're there. But as they're praying, what do the disciples do? They take a nap. They're tired. They're spiritually weak. They fall asleep. Amazing, given what's, what they're about to awake to. Because when they awake, they see him appearing in glory. But not alone. He's got the dazzling white. His face is altered. Moses and Elijah are there. And so Peter wakes up and he has to say something. But what he says is uh, really a, a disrespect to Jesus. He wants to, let, let's contain the situation. This is really cool. Look what's going on here. We've got Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Let's make three tabernacles. You guys can all camp out. We'll just, we'll just freeze frame what's going on here. That's absolutely against God's plan. First of all, you know, when, when I travel on business, sometimes I travel with a coworker that's way my senior. You know, we, sometimes we don't even stay in the same hotel. They get a better room. One of those rooms on the top floor. We don't all stay at the same level, you know, because I'm just at the bottom. That's what Peter's doing. He's putting their, them all on the same level. See, we got Elijah, we got Moses, and we got Jesus. Wrong. Wrong. Let's make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then it says, not knowing what he said. Ever been there? Oops. I sure wish I hadn't said that. I didn't know what to say. I couldn't keep my mouth shut. It happens. So before we are too hard on Peter, I think we realize that he's really a mirror for us more than a villain. Here in this section, who is Jesus? Jesus is God's son. He shows up in the cloud, the Shekinah glory coming out. But it couldn't be clearer because out of the, the cloud comes a voice. Talk about an identity question. This is unmistakable. The voice says, this is my Son. They're already afraid because they've entered into a cloud. Every instrument pilot knows what that's like once you enter the cloud. But here they were. Now they couldn't see anything, but they hear the voice from heaven itself, testimony of who Jesus is. This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So Peter gets the question wrong here. Who is Jesus? And he, 
He treats him just like any, a man amongst great men. The best of men are men at best, and Jesus is not on that level. And so we can't profess that Jesus is the Christ and express your life as if he is just on par with great men. Jesus takes the highest station, like the hymn writer wrote. So that the, the witness here is unmistakable from the cloud. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. When the, Susie and Don Van Ryan realized the identity of their girl, there was, there was action to be taken. It's the same with Jesus. You identify him as the Christ, as the Lord, as the Son of God. It requires a response. There's action to be taken. It requires a, a daily response. So by way of my testimony, as Jesus being the Christ, the suffering Christ, I'm thankful that as a, as a young Christian, I was being discipled, and the Christians in my circle had a really good appreciation for the cross. They never forgot it. If they were giving thanks for food, if they were praying for anything, anytime we were together and we addressed the Lord, always came up. Thanksgiving for what Jesus did on the cross. It was never just a, a list of, here's my laundry list and my grocery list and the things that I need. There's always this apprehension of what happened at Calvary. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. It wasn't just some sort of a rote statement. It was a genuine expression of, of thanks for the cross. And yet, with appreciation for the ugliness of it and, and now the preciousness of it, both. I'm thankful for that. It's really a fundamental to Christian reality. And the newsboys who say, um, who sing, um, let our faith be more than anthems. Right? He's the Christ. Jesus is the Lord. If we say we follow Jesus, then we should follow Jesus. Followers should follow. And that's really the ultimate correlation in life. To say one thing, and then to live in a way consistent with what we say. To walk the talk. I learned something about this in, in seminary. It was lots of studying, lots of reading, lots of writing, lots of time. And I, I thought I'd be gaining all these answers to hard questions and understanding theology and whatnot. But other things happened. My, my wife's testimony is that the main thing that happened in those eight years is that it revitalized our marriage. And it made me a better dad. Who would have thought? Because what was actually happening is that this question, the question today, was becoming bigger and bigger in my, in my face. 
who is Jesus? And what difference does it make? It makes me a better coworker, a better employee, a better neighbor, a better worshiper, because this question of who is Jesus, I'm struggling to answer. So Jesus is Christ, the suffering Christ. Jesus is a Lord who calls disciples to follow. And thirdly, he's the Son of God. Acknowledging the Son of God, acknowledging God requires worship. And it's really an act of worship to, to be awake and to listen, something the disciples struggled with on more than one occasion. To listen. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Uh, back to my wife, who's uh, 50 yesterday, by the way. She would want you to know. She's a, she's a mother and a, a therapist and a teacher and all these roles. She does everything. But none of them is important as the role of disciple. Jesus calls us to do many of these things, but his primary calling is to be a disciple, a follower. And that's what she does. Every morning she's up in her little little chair, bundled up with her Bible and her coffee, and she's listening to Jesus, turning the pages. So that's our primary calling, acknowledging that from the cloud, being in the cloud with no one else, seeing Jesus only, worship. Hearing, Hearing God's will can be more clear can't be more clear than in this passage because it it's came from God's voice himself. Listen to me, like, like, like a tuning fork. It's, it's precise. It's exactly on pitch. But we don't really listen to someone we don't want to follow and obey. All parents know this. It, it's, it's too hard to listen and, and hear the rules and the, the commands if you know you're not going to obey them. There's too much tension there. There's too much guilt. And so we'd rather not listen at all. And so it's, I didn't hear you. What did you say? Pleading of ignorance. And we do that spiritually. I just didn't know. Well, So what do we learn from Peter here? These, these sections are strung together because Peter's emphasized through the whole thing. Is he our hero? Is he our villain? Or is he just me? He did make a good profession, but at that point he failed to understand who Jesus really is. Luke is telling us that Jesus is the God's son who surprisingly suffers. That's just a key fact we have to wed together with him being a glorious son who suffers. That's what he's getting at. So we see Jesus as the suffering Christ, the master defining discipleship, and the very son of God. As we follow Peter through this passage, we find that the force of the text is not to give you a few more theological tidbits to understand. The force of this text is, is the question itself. 
Who is Jesus? And so that demands we ask this question. How does your life answer the question, who is Jesus? Father, help us to know your Son and to live it out. Amen. You're dismissed. If there were a couple of little ones, they can come on up. We'll talk about this.